there's tremendous excitement around the concept of precision oncology. That is, delivering therapies targeted to an individual patient's specific type of cancer. But how many patients will truly benefit from these treatments? And how do the results for these patients justify the hype? I'm Nicole Magziars, Associate Director of Strategy at New Century Health. And today we are going to cut through the hype to get precise about the promise of precision medicine. I'm joined by Dr. Vinay Prasad, a hematologist oncologist and associate professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco and best-selling author of Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer. Dr. Prasad, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Also joining us is Dr. Andrew Hurtler, Chief Medical Officer with New Century Health. Dr. Hurtler, welcome. Thank you, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start off by being exact with our language. How would you define precision oncology? Well, that's an excellent question, and it's a bit ironic because it's got precision in the title, but the definition is rather imprecise. Um, Recently, with a colleague, Audrey Tran, we looked at the definition of precision oncology over the last 15 years in in medicine, and we find it's undergone a great deal of shape-shifting. You know, it wasn't that long ago, maybe in the mid-2000s, that precision oncology meant any old targeted drug. So Gleevec um, for CML, that was precision oncology. But over time, it's increasingly come to mean in, in in more recent samplings of the literature to sequence patients with cancer irrespective of the cancer histology and pair them with targeted drugs based on the mutations you find. So a patient with BRAF V600 with melanoma might get dibrafenib, and that same patient with cholangiocarcinoma might get a BRAF-targeted agent. So that's increasingly what precision oncology means, the pairing of patients with targeted drugs based on molecular alterations irrespective of tumor histology. And that's certainly a broadened definition of precision oncology, though that we would traditionally think of. I love the example of chronic myelogenous leukemia because as I look back over my 30 years as an oncologist and you were, if you were to ask me what is the single greatest advance uh, in oncology I've seen, and it was the development of Gleevec, a very specific drug. Uh, it was developed in response to a known mutation in the BCR able gene and targets the specific tyrosine kinase, uh, which that BCR able gene codes for. So precision medicine was the use of very targeted therapies to very specific mutations in very specific diseases. It has now come to define a much broader term, and that is the sequencing of patients looking for any mutation and then trying to find the drug that targets that mutation. The key question really is, if you target that mutation in one disease, and let's take the example of BRAF in melanoma, when you have a V600E mutation in the BRAF gene and you use the brafenib, you are going to have a, in all likelihood, a high probability of response. But does that carry through to all other tumor types that have that same mutation? And that's the real question. But precision medicine has really come to mean as much the search for any targeted mutation rather than searching for any previously identified mutation. 
And when we think about the patients who present in a typical oncology practice, what percentage have cancers that can be matched to precision therapies? Well, that's a good question. So I would say one way to look at it is to look at just the FDA-approved drugs, the drugs for which an oncologist would perform a genetic test, and if they have the mutation, provide the drug. So for instance, ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer, you might, grit, you might give electinib or crizotinib or seritinib or something like that. And it turns out in an investigation I did with a colleague, John Markhart and colleagues in JAMA Oncology in 2018, we looked at all of the FDA-approved mutation drug pairings that were out there. And we found that, a bit surprisingly, only about 8.5% of U.S. cancer patients could realistically be paired with an FDA-approved drug. So although we talk about this strategy so much, the reality is that the number of people who actually benefit from these genome FDA drug-approved pairs is actually rather limited. Now, there's another sense you might talk about precision oncology, which is the sense that goes a little bit beyond that, that Dr. Hertler was alluding to, which is for the patient who has exhausted proven therapeutic options, there's a number of commercial companies that will sequence broad panels of genes and tell you that even though this patient doesn't have a classic cancer where there's an FDA-approved therapy, perhaps they have a mutation that lends itself to an FDA-approved therapy in an off-label manner. And it turns out if you do that type of sequencing and look for those kind of matches, I think the best available evidence is rather sobering. You know, there's a study called Moscato-1, and it had 1,000 people with relapsed refractory tumors who underwent sequencing. And they were, I think, rather permissive in making matches. And many groups have gotten a bit more permissive, and they allow as many as 20% of people who undergo this sequencing to be matched with the drug. But the reality is only a fraction of those patients undergo tumor response or tumor shrinkage. And I believe in the Moscato study, it averaged about 2% of the overall cohort. So in other words, 1,000 people participated in a sequencing event, and maybe only about 2% of them actually had meaningful 30% or more. We can, we can debate how meaningful that is, but at least classic resist 1.1 response from that effort. And I think that is lower than what many of us would have hoped and would have wanted. So I guess the answer to your question of what fraction of cancer patients benefit, it might be that 8.5%, um, now a little bit closer to 10% in some unpublished data we have, plus a couple more percentage points of people who might be paired in this off-label manner. But the reality is most people with cancer still have the backbone of their therapy continue to be cytotoxic drugs and immunotherapy drugs. Those are much more common, commonly used in this country for, for treating people with cancer. For those patients who do not match to a precision therapy, are we seeing major increases in survival or other measures of efficacy? I think the history in this space has been really illustrative. The first drug, of course, Gleevec for BCR-ABLE in CML, was really the best drug. In terms of response rate in the phase one study, we had 98% complete hematologic response in that disease. And the durability we saw with that drug was on the order of decades. In fact, a recent study that was published in the JCO that came out of Sweden looked at the estimated life expectancy that a 55-year-old woman in Sweden would have had based on the year with which she was diagnosed with CML. And if she was diagnosed in the 1970s, she would be lucky to live a median of three to four years or have three to four years of life left. So that's a 55-year-old woman living to maybe just shy of 60. A huge loss of life compared to her normal life expectancy had she not had CML. 
Fast forward to 2010 and the use of BCR ABL inhibitors in CML, and that same 55-year-old woman, if she were diagnosed in Sweden in that year, she would have had almost the same life expectancy had she not had CML. That 20 years plus life expectancy would have almost been completely remedied by the use of BCR ABL inhibitors. Now that to me is the hope of precision oncology, a targeted pill you can take for years and years that almost restore normal life expectancy. So I think that's the pinnacle, Gleevec. That's the best we've done. Now let's talk about you know, some of the approved cancer drugs. I think ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer is a great example. Those drugs are good drugs. Electinib, brigatinib, lorlatinib, they have a role in that space. But the current studies suggest that you know potentially a 55-year-old woman diagnosed with ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer, she won't have her life expectancy closed by all of those drugs in sequence. She may live median survival. I think the best studies suggest it's just over five years, which is good. But it, it forgets the fact that we're still talking about 10, 15, even 20 years of life that are still lost. So these other exquisitely targeted drugs that have very high response rates and have good durability, they don't have the durability we need to really close that huge life expectancy gap. Now, the last thing Dr. Hurtler was alluding to, I think, is where there's a lot of enthusiasm for these drugs, which is these broad-based genome panels in patients with all types of malignancies and trying to pair them in an off-label fashion with existing targeted drugs that were not approved for that cancer, but nevertheless are out there. And I think if one looks at this data set, the reality is rather sobering. I think we once looked at some retrospective studies that compare people who receive targeted drugs versus those who don't. And this is really kind of an apples and oranges comparison. It's comparing people who have some types of mutations, the druggable kinds, against people who have P53 loss and other mutations that are hitherto undruggable, maybe undruggable for a reason. They're, they're not going to do as well, irrespective of therapy. And even in this setting, which I think kind of stacks the deck in favor of targeted therapy, some of these retrospective analyses show just one, two, three-month survival gains from undergoing this strategy. So those are retrospective analyses that I think are upwardly inflated, showing you a survival benefit on the order of a month or two months. I think that suggests that this strategy is you know, extremely costly, um, but may not be what's best for every patient. And it's still more experimental and research sort of strategy than it is a practical strategy, in my opinion. Given the issues you've raised, how would you advise payers on whether to cover genomic testing for cancer patients at a cost of $2,000 to $6,000? In specific cases, it's highly appropriate, and others not so much. The question really is, are you searching for a mutation for which we have a drug targeted to that mutation that shows a clinically meaningful efficacy. And by that, I mean an improvement in overall survival that we'd like to see at a minimum about 20% over the baseline. And realizing that when you see the drugs such as Dr. Prasad has discussed in chronic myelogenous leukemia, uh, Gleevec, you hardly even need a clinical trial uh, in, in those kind of cases, but we still want to have an improvement in survival, which is meaningful to the patient. And in those cases, when we know there's a drug that offers a significant possibility of an improvement in survival that's meaningful, then the test should be used. But when you're searching 
in a patient with advanced disease for which we have no known targeted mutations for which we have a drug for that tumor type. And you're just searching for a mutation for which we might have something to treat it for. That is not the way we really want to spend our healthcare dollar right now. That certainly is the subject of future research. Um, but that's not a situation I would recommend next generation sequencing for. This is the space where optimism, lobbying has maybe outpaced available evidence. And a few years ago, in a CMS decision, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Services decided to cover for patients with certain types of advanced solid tumors a one-time broad-based genomically sequencing panel and to cover that cost. And I think at the time, and I published in the Annals of Oncology a paper critical of that decision, saying that it didn't really demand the manufacturers of those tests to show that patients who undergo testing live longer or live better lives as a result of that testing than had they simply had doctors prescribe conventional salvage regimens as we always used to based on the patient's appearance, how they did with prior therapy, and the particulars of the tumor that they have. So I think there is certainly a role for genomic testing. If you have non-small cell lung cancer, you're going to want to know about your EGFR mutation status. You're going to want to know ALK. And if you have metastatic melanoma, you're going to want to know BRAF. You're going to want to know the results of certain genes in certain tumor types. But that lends the question of, do you need to know the result of every gene in every tumor type? And I think there's a gap here in our understanding and the available evidence. Dr. Hurtler talked about that there may be an interaction between a mutation and a tissue type. And what that really means is that the same drug that works exquisitely well for BRAF V600 metastatic melanoma might have no activity for BRAF V600 multiple myeloma. Just because you have a mutation and just because you have a drug doesn't necessarily mean the patient is best by taking that drug, certainly when there are alternative drugs available. And I think this is a challenge that faces us even with approvals like tumor mutational burden high and pembrolizumab. We just saw a broad TMB high approval for pembrolizumab, which applies to prostate cancer. But we know very little about how pembrolizumab works in TMB high prostate cancer because there were very few, I think zero patients in the registration data, and we still don't know what the response rate is in that tissue. So does every tissue at the same level of TMB have the same response to checkpoint inhibitors? We don't know the answer to that question. So I think it is important that payers cover what will benefit our patients. It's also important to be cognizant of the fact that there is an enthusiasm here and that lobbying can sometimes outpace evidence. And there may be pressure to pay for tests that we really don't know, let our patients live longer or better lives. And it's easy to say that we don't know that. And I'd go a little bit further and say, sometimes what happens is when you get genomic information that you don't know what to do with, you may not give a drug you would have given that you have some robust phase two or phase three data, and instead chase the idea that the genomic information has got to be better information. But you may end up giving a drug that has less of a response rate and less of PFS than the drug that you know works. So I think it's a double-edged sword. It's very, very important to realize that just because you have more information doesn't mean you make better decisions. And the difference between the two is a very tricky, tricky matter, I think, in, in cancer medicine. What you've both described is a sobering reality about the state of precision medicine today. What do you see as its future? Will it ultimately live up to the hype? 
Well, I guess I'd say I'm a believer that the past is a great predictor of the future. And if you go by what's already happened to date, you can look at a supplemental figure in the paper by Markhart and colleagues in 2018 that we published. Um, we plot the percent of U.S. cancer patients who are eligible for genome-targeted therapies year by year since, I think, 2006. And what you see is you don't see an exponential rising curve, I think, as the rhetoric would have you believe. You see a slow, steady, linear rise of about half a percent to 1% per year. In other words, are we making progress? Absolutely. Is that progress accelerating? I don't see evidence that that's the case. I think cancer has always been and will always be a very challenging, a very challenging malady. And we will see continued progress in this front, but we should not expect it to be faster than that. I think the reality is that in some specific instances, this is going to continue to work wonders. I think we see that with tropomycin receptor kinase fusions. Those particular instances may apply, as in that example, to rarer tumor types like soft tissue sarcoma and salivary duct cancers. I'm not confident that they will apply equally to colon cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, the five big cancers and breast cancer, the five cancers that we deal with the most as oncologists, because I'm not entirely convinced those common cancers, which are the product of years of environmental exposures plus underlying genetics, I'm not sure those common cancers are single oncogene-addicted cancers. I think they're cancers with broad patterns of genomic mutations, and they may be very difficult nuts to crack. So I think it's possible someday that genetic sequencing and paired therapy will be superior to current standards in all tumor types. But based on the information we have today, that day certainly is not today, and I don't see it coming in the near term. I think it's important that one can be the biggest proponent and the biggest enthusiast for precision oncology. In fact, I applaud such people. We need them to drive innovation. But at the same time, one must be the biggest pragmatist and the biggest realist as well and demand that just because something has precision in the title doesn't mean we accept lower standards of evidence to support it. We should demand the same standard of evidence. There is out there a very robust pipeline of precision oncology therapies. I was looking just the other day uh, through journals and saw an article on KRAS. Now, KRAS is a mutation that we have often considered, quote unquote, undruggable. But there is one specific mutation, the G12C mutation, and they believe they now have drugs that can specifically inhibit this. And it's beginning, going to begin phase one and phase two trials. And that really is where we need to concentrate our effort. There need to be randomized, controlled clinical trials, which look at look to uncover these mutations and then evaluate potential new drugs which target these mutations in individual diseases. From the standpoint of what is the standard of care, we at New Century Health are going to be evaluating on a case-by-case basis. And if there is a new drug targeting a specific mutation and a specific disease, which shows a significant improvement in survival. And as I said, we really like to see at least crossing that 20% barrier. That's a situation in which we're going to advocate for the test looking for that mutation to be done. But when you're looking for mutations for which we do in tumors for which we do not yet have targeted therapies, that's the patient that we want to see enrolled in a randomized clinical trial, which will look for the mutation and evaluate the drugs. And 
that is the path for the future, though it will likely, as Dr. Brassad just mentioned, not going to be as fast as we would all desire. Thank you both for this fascinating discussion. This is yet another reminder that cancer is incredibly complex and that treatments that sound plausible in theory don't always work in the real world. So we have to continue relying on the science and evidence to get a clear-eyed view. Thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode. Please visit us on newcenturyhealth.com or your favorite podcast platform for future episodes in this series.